we're going to continue here with our study. We've got uh, two more weeks in our book. I'll wait till everybody gets their gets their hand out there. So. So, uh, chapter 12, relate, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. We start here with this quote, Understanding a person's experience, then helping them to understand it themselves, will only be helpful if they have somewhere to go with this greater awareness. So, there's a lot of uh, discussion in various secular models of understanding why you do what you do, those kind of ideas, which is all good and well, except how do you then use it in a way that's useful instead of just, I know why I'm doing bad stuff, but I don't know where to go from there. And uh, obviously, if we point people with more self-awareness of what they're doing wrong to themselves, they're going to fail. To other people, they're going to be discouraged. To Jesus, then with his help in the context of relationship with God, they can begin to change and have success in these ways. And so we see here, Christian theology holds up an ideal that is not merely a conceptual construct, but a living person. So over against, um, you know, Jung's race consciousness or Freud's sexual awareness, or um, I forget the name, but there was a couple of people who had this idea of like, you know, you're this delicate flower and you just need to be allowed to blossom, or the ideas of self-actualization, or against all of those secular constructs, we have the biblical ideal, not a way to live in and of itself, but a relationship with a person that then affects the way that we live. Jesus is the perfection of humanity who came to restore the flawed and broken. Properly relating to Christ is to trust the words he says, counselors, which in this context, Romans 15, all of you are able to admonish one another. That's all of us, so don't just hear that and say that's somebody else. Need to know what God would say about the beliefs, values, and commitments of a person's heart. So our goal is not just that we know what's wrong, but that we compare and contrast it with what God has said about that particular subject. Um, every use of scripture must drive at faith in Christ. So, uh, 2 Timothy 2.22. Let's t- you just use that as an example. He uses it in the book. Flee youthful lusts. Okay? It is possible for someone to spend their time admonishing a young man to put off old behavior and put on the new, so he changes habits to establish given methods, to establish the discipline, so he starts being consistent in doing right things. Warn him against failure. Here's the dangers you're going to face. Here's how to potentially avoid them. All without explaining the power to change is an effect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this good news is continuously received by the exercise of faith. We can, for a period of time, have success in our own efforts apart from truly knowing Jesus. But as I've tried to emphasize in previous weeks, all that means is that that person is a little bit cleaned up before they're damned. We've got to get that because there is so much in society that says, well, as long as everything looks okay on the outside, we're good. There needs to be true and genuine heart change or else we're just prepping corpses, right? People can look nice in a funeral home, but they have no life. People can look nice in the way their lives are going, 
but they have no connection with Jesus, and those outward efforts are going to crumble and fail. This is how Jesus went after the Pharisees so hard. He said, outward, you're whitewashed tombs, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And so, you know, the two extremes we encounter for varying reasons are, here's the sin just spilling forth and we see it's really bad, or here's the sin in our hearts and we cover it up and everybody kind of thinks things are okay. And the solution to both of those change from rank obvious sin and change from secret hypocritical sin is the gospel in a relationship with Jesus. So, let's go back to our case study. And so we talked about this idea of husband and wife having a uh, uh, serious marital conflict. Um, the husband thinks the wife is lazy. He is committed to his job and his RC plane hobby and hanging out with his friends more than his wife. The wife thinks the husband is selfish. Committed to, she's committed to a nice house and enjoying herself versus ministering to him. Both have a warped view of God. We talked about last week in this little case study that we played out. The husband goes to church a couple of times a month, doesn't really think about God otherwise, so he sort of sees God as an add-on to, to his life. The wife sees God as more like a power of positive thinking kind of scenario. As long as God makes me feel good, I have use for God. When he doesn't, eh, that's not really for me. So she doesn't seem particularly committed to Christianity either. They respond, therefore, in selfish ways when the other person doesn't give what is desired. So, for example, the husband's like, well, I'm not going to fix this stuff that's broken around the house, and he's manipulative because she's not doing what I want. The wife gets mad, then she comes back from spending time with her friends and sees that the husband hasn't done anything while she's been gone, so she sulks off to bed and doesn't want to talk to him. So let's work through our categories here. Now, as we've discussed before, and I've thought about this a lot a fair bit in the last few weeks, should we start with the category of God and then look at circumstances others than self? Or should we sort of build to the here's your relationship with God? I think either is potentially legitimate as long as we arrive at here's your relationship with God because apart from that, the other three don't really matter. So we'll just follow it the way that it's in the book, but you could legitimately start with God and then discuss circumstances others than self. Circumstances. Let's say, for example, you show the husband Philippians 4, 11, and 12. So let's turn there and maybe someone can read it for us. Who would like to read that for us? Philippians 4, 11, and 12. Evan, go ahead. So, we could point that, that's just one example of many passages that we could point him to. So, he made this statement, God has stuck me in a thankless marriage. So, that's clearly a statement of not being content with where he's at. Now, obviously, there are things about his wife that needs to change. But the reality is, even if his wife changes, he will still be unhappy if he doesn't recognize the things that Paul is saying in Philippians 4 and in other places as well. You also need to acknowledge the differences between the Bible passage and that person's experience from this perspective. 
Paul was not experiencing marriage conflict in Philippians 4. What was Paul experiencing? Persecution. Persecution. Where was Paul? In jail. Paul's in prison experiencing persecution. So his experience is not the same as the husband's, and yet the principle of that passage is very relevant. So you could say something along these lines. The author wrote this. You say, Paul didn't know necessarily. He wasn't having a fight with his wife. But do you think he'd experienced some kind of suffering? And if he doesn't know enough about Philippians to know, you could sort of walk him through that. Paul's in jail. Paul's friends have abandoned him. People that he thought were going to stick with him to the end have left him. Uh, other people are, are behaving spitefully because he's in prison and using it as an opportunity to advance themselves. Paul was having all sorts of problems. And yet despite that, he still said, I can be content. So, how is that possible, you ask this man? What are some potential responses he might have? How can this man be content despite all these bad things that are going on? Jim? Well, he's, he's probably lowered his expectations on what his life should be because of his marriage and, and everything. So he's, he's content is, is the minimal. The guy in the case study? Yeah. How would we show him that Paul can be content, like the connection there? Uh, well, because, yeah, because of Jesus, because of his belief in the Lord. Yeah, okay. It's more than content. Okay, good. An exactly, absolutely. Okay, Bob? I think, too, it's the, it's the source of the contentment. Okay. Sure. And with Christ, it's only in Him. And when we understand that, then all of the other things are secondary or tertiary. And sure. They don't matter as much. Yeah, Rob? Yeah. There's certain theological foundation ideas that maybe the guy in our case study doesn't get. And again, we're, we're kind of writing this line of, is he a believer or not? We're going to address that uh, a little bit later this morning, because I think this is a question that, that you've got to get to, because otherwise, at a certain point, you're just spinning your wheels. They're not going to make any progress. But let's operate on the assumption that he's like one of the Corinthian believers, very immature, but still knows God, despite all of his flaws. Until we know otherwise, we'll confront that a little bit later this morning. I think you could be very blunt and say, uh, you're looking for happiness in your hobby. You're looking for happiness in your friends. You're looking for happiness in your wife. Paul didn't have any of those things. So you might say something like, well, Paul didn't have to deal with my wife. Well, it doesn't matter whether Paul had to deal with your wife or not. The problem is, as you all were pointing out, the focus needs to be not on finding contentment in these circumstances, people, objects around us, but in finding our contentment in God himself. And until we get that, we're going to be dissatisfied no matter how many things we think are, are, are all in order in our lives. 
So that, that's some of the thinking kind of things. We're going to move to one of the feeling kind of questions uh, with regard to the wife. And the reason I'm alternating is not because uh, the husband has only thinking problems and the wife has only feeling problems, because I'm going to switch them in the next one. I'm just, uh, there's only so much room on the page. Okay, So that's why we're alternating back and forth. The idea is we're moving through these categories under the, under the broad heading of circumstances. What do I need to think about my circumstances? What do I need to feel about my circumstances? What do I need to do about my circumstances? So, you talk to the wife about how she soaked off to bed mad at her husband. You could potentially confront her with a passage like 1 Peter 3. Who wants to read 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 for us? Bob? In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Okay. So, obviously that passage could be misused. I am sure, because I've heard people give terrible advice in various venues, like I was driving my car last night, and there was an advice column, and it was about relationships, and it's from a secular perspective, and it was, you know, obviously because it was from a secular perspective, it was things like, if I'm an atheist and someone wants to pray at Thanksgiving, should I leave the room? So there's those sorts of issues, which is not what we're thinking of, but my point is there are people who have used Bible passages and given terrible advice, like... Your husband's beating you, but you just need to stay there and try to win him to Jesus. We should not use 1 Peter 3 in that way. However, we should not swing to the other extreme and miss the weight of the passage, which is your husband can be a, a, an idiot and selfish and a horrible human being, and you may have an opportunity to be a testimony for Christ to him as the wife. And so that I think we, we should not miss, even though the passage has been misused. So when we talk to this wife about her response to her husband, specifically this sulking off to bed, this sort of avoiding him, how do we relate her circumstances and the way that she's responding to them, the way that she's feeling about these things, to the way she's acting toward her husband in light of this passage? What are some questions we could ask? What are some things we could point out to her? How are your actions uh, a reflection of your faith in Christ? Yeah. Even more specifically, we could ask a question like, does you sulking off to bed help him either grow in his faith or come to trust Jesus, or is it just what you felt like doing? Like We get really pointed with the question. And the reason that I say that is, what you said was absolutely true, Bob, but I think sometimes we've got to drive it deeper and be very specific. Here's the thing that you did. Here's how it contradicts what God said you should do. Here's what it reveals about your heart. You love yourself more than God, so you're more concerned about getting your way, so when you don't get your way, you behave in this way, and it makes you feel better, but it doesn't advance the cause of the gospel. got to be very clear in some of those sorts of things. And again, there's this question. If she doesn't care about the gospel because she's never believed it, but we'll get to that in a moment. So in this category of others, so we have sort of these circles of 
things that, that we want to work through in a person's life in a relationship with others. So you could say to the husband something like, we've seen how you believe your life is lazy. Because he said that specifically in a previous week in the case study that I made up for you. Are you being, and this I thought was a really important note in the book, are you being realistic about the person's sin and weakness and charitable about their worth? In other words, we, we sort of have this tension. We can go to the one extreme and act like there's no sin, everything's happy and perfect and nothing is ever bad, and, and or everything will be perfect in this life, and that's not true. We can also go to the other extreme and, and devalue people and act like they can't change and act like God's doing nothing in their lives. So we have to recognize the reality that none of us is going to be perfect until Jesus comes back and we're with him, but that doesn't mean that we stop trying with God's help to grow in Christ-likeness. And so if all that he has seen is she's lazy, she's lazy, she's lazy, here's all the things that are wrong with her, the first question is, are those things true? And the second question is, even if they are true, how imbalanced is your perspective on your wife in light of this, this expectation that God changes people, it takes time, uh, are you being patient with her, are you helping her along in that process, or are you only pointing out her flaws? And I think it's really easy for us to get fixated on this idea of, here's how someone falls short of what God wants them to be, without recognizing that we can be contributing to them not making progress because that's all that we're focused on. We should never excuse sin. But we should also recognize God's at work in people over the course of time. We want everything fixed right now. Uh, but if we look at ourselves, we recognize that's not the case. Any quick thoughts on that before we move on to the next one? Jim. Well, you, you said it very clearly. Patience, it takes, you know, things happen in God's time, not ours. Sure. And he has a bigger purpose that we might not be aware of all that's involved in this. And uh, I find patience. My wife helps me with that. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I was looking here to see. Um, hang on a second. There we go. Maybe. Oh, I see. I was trying to figure out why the page numbers weren't matching up. I think he rewrote the end of the book. Um, anyways, go ahead. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Eric. Correct me if I'm wrong, but our commandment as husbands to love our wives doesn't come with any caveats. There's no love your wife, you know, as long as she's not lazy. Right. I'm going to be like, I will love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and love my neighbor as myself as long as my neighbor is a nice person. But <laughs> that's not what it says. It's a great point. Okay. Anything else? I don't know we'll get to this in one of the other sections but one of the things I've learned is yes we need to know what we should do yeah. 
But unless our desire changes, we'll never make the necessary changes. Okay. So I think getting to getting people to see where their true desire lies uh, in relationship to everything else, and obviously to Christ, that seems to be the heart of the matter. Unless their desires change, they can read the Bible every day, and nothing's going to change. Yeah, so we don't want to be simplistic that if we just change the outward actions, if we just change the way that they think about things, as they still want things badly, there's still a part of themselves that's broken. So that segues nicely to the next one. Uh, he says here, instead of being motivated by self-centered desires for what others can do for them, for example, I want her to like me, they are freed by a deeper desire for God's glory in the relationship. For example, I want her to be built up in the Lord. This will change the emotional texture of the relationship, less fear and hurt, more genuine grief and hope. Faith frees them from measuring others by old value systems, appearance, desirability as a mate, social influence, etc. Instead, they'll begin to assess people according to what God says is valuable. This, in turn, will allow them to be more characterized by godly emotions toward others, less self-justifying disgust or anger, more sympathy and hope. So let's turn to the wife. We could also turn to the husband with a similar question, but just to sort of be fair and go back and forth. To the wife, we've seen that you feel anger consistently about your husband, and we've been able to attach that feeling to something along the lines of a desire to have a perfect life like these people you watch on TV, like these lives your friends represent to you on their social media, like the things that you read in the books and whatever else is the movies you watch. You have this idea of how your life should be. This doesn't line up with it. And so you're mad at your husband because he's not giving you these things that you deeply desire. So going about what Bob was saying, as long as she's desiring those things, as long as the husband is desiring his wife to fulfill the role that only God can fulfill, there's going to be a great deal of frustration because they have a wrong goal. So where can we go to find God's opinion on the matter? Let's just talk about the wife for a second. Uh, we could also go back and talk about the husband as well. If her goal is to have a perfect life, what are some passages of Scripture that we could point her to? Devin? Okay. Yeah, so the starting point is not give me what I want and then I'll follow you, God. It starts with trusting God and he'll direct us. The story of Jacob is interesting in this regard because it seems like he's bargaining with God. God, as long as you take care of me and, and watch out for me, then you know I'll follow after you. And that, I think, was a sign of a great deal of immaturity on Jacob's part. In contrast to later in his life, he still had some of that immaturity, but he looks back and says, God, here's how you've been faithful in taking care of me and almost how I should have followed you even regardless of all those things um, in the book of Genesis. Other, other thoughts on this? Other passages we could point her to? I want to have the perfect life, and here's what it looks like. Rob? Um, like, if her idea of a perfect life or a kid, um, you know, is reading these books or watching these shows or something, one could try to draw them back into the Bible in general um, to, to see how life, God's purpose for life is. Yeah. 
again, there's this conflict between expectations of society of how life should go and realities of how life often does go, and then we have to evaluate that relative to the trajectory of people's lives that we see in Scripture. Was the general pattern for people's lives in the Bible, everything is perfect from a human happiness kind of perspective? No. So if that's our goal, then we have a goal that's in conflict both with what people's typical experience is. Now, let me, let me clarify this. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, enjoy food and family and the fruit of your labor and all these sorts of things. So we ought to enjoy the things God has given us, but we can't expect that the entirety of our lives are going to be free from any sort of difficulty. We can't expect that the people around us are always going to do exactly what God wants them to do because we don't. We shouldn't expect that... Um, life is always going to be easy because it's not. And so if her perspective is this very uh, short-sighted and, and skewed perspective that comes from, you know, uh, take your typical TV, um, TV episode. 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how many commercials. There's a problem. It gets resolved. By the end of the show, generally. Sometimes it runs to two episodes, okay? Is that how life works? No. So even if, even if that media that she's consuming had, reflects biblical values in the way that the problems are, happen, are, are handled, which is rarely the case, if ever, even if that were the case, the very fact of this idea that everything's sort of wrapped up neatly in 40 to 80 minutes is completely unrealistic with how life works. So that kind of, I think, leads us to this next thing. Who are the people who exert the most influence on your outlook on life? It seems like it's your friends. The husband's hanging out with his buddies. The wife's hanging out with her friends. That is contributing to their dissatisfaction in their marriage. The solution is not necessarily to abandon all those friendships, although that might be part of it, but the solution is, at the very least, there has to be a rebalancing of the voices that are having influence on their lives. So instead of three hours a night hanging out with the buddies doing the hobby, maybe you need to take an hour, sit down with your wife, and read the Bible together or do something like that, or even 20 minutes to start and then work your way up from there because if all the, all the thing that's coming into your life is she's, she's not good enough for you and, and you need to find somebody else and all those sorts of things and, 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 and he's a jerk and, and you know, uh, why do you stay with him and all these sorts of things, if that's the influences that are coming into their lives, they're going to be dissatisfied. Just like there's a lot of Black Friday ads because all the retailers were worried they were going to make any money after not making a lot of money last year. All of that was directed toward what you have is not good enough. If you buy this thing, you'll be like this person in the commercial who is smiling and you know has their hair brushed and whatever else, right? Um, and then you will be happy too, so buy this thing. If that's the constant influence in our life, what are we going to do? We're going to buy stuff. But if we instead contrast that with the attitude of Paul that says, I don't have to have any stuff at all and I can still be content, then we might say, you know what? I don't necessarily need to go Black Friday shopping. I mean, you know, if there's something we need and we want to save a little bit, great. 
But, you know, we don't have to do it now if there's something more important happening or all that sort of thing. So we've got we've to work through with the relationship with others. What are we believing about people and is it a skewed thing? We're only focusing on what's bad or we're only focusing on what's good. Uh, what are we feeling and desiring? Do we want them to do this thing for us? And, uh, and we want this in a way that's in conflict with the way that God said the world works or the patterns that we see in Scripture, all those sorts of things? Are we influenced by these voices that keep, keep pushing us away from a right perspective and right actions? Um, then we need to cut those voices off. And not in a... So, you know, there's this push about self-care and, uh, you know, if, if, if people drag you down, get them out of your life. The reality is... We have family and friends that we need to minister to who are not necessarily going to make us feel good. And we still have a responsibility to minister to them. That being said, the part of it that's true is if those people are having such a strong influence on your life that they're drowning out your relationship with God and what God wants you to do, then at the very least you're going to have to step back from some of those relationships for a while to the extent that you're able. Let's go to the category of self. You say to the wife, you, you tend to think you keep a good house. So let's, this is kind of ties into the, what is our assessment of ourselves as people that we talked about in previous weeks? How do you think that belief fits into God's perspective of you? So the wife is like, I try to keep the house nice, and my husband comes in and messes it up, and he never fixes anything. How does, I'm a person who keeps her house nice, the, the wife's idea, does that match up with Scripture? Does it not match up with Scripture? Let's take a passage like Proverbs 31. Think down through there. What are some of the characteristics of the wife? Okay, she gets up early. Okay, what else? She makes clothes for him. Yes. So if you don't sew your husband's clothes, you're not a good one. That's not where we're going with this. Um, but the idea of diligence, regardless of what other people around her are doing. So there's that idea. But that needs to be balanced because um, there's a lot of responsibilities that are potentially competing. Here's an ideal that's held up that... I'm not sure if anyone genuinely lives up to consistently every day, all day long, okay? Whether it be the wife or the husband. Um, so this is a model or an ideal, but there's going to be conflict. So uh, something comes up with her work. So maybe the bed doesn't get made and whatever other things she normally does around the house, maybe there's a gap in that. Does that then mean she's a terrible person? Not necessarily. Um, but just trying to help her think through, is your goal simply to be, I keep a good house, or are there are a lot of other things that God's calling you to do that may be as important or even more important than just that one thing that is your, your main focus at this point. So, kind of to build on that, if your goal is to have your house look a certain way, and you spend all your time on Pinterest trying to come up with ideas, and that then leads you to neglect other things, like, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, I don't go to church, then this idea of, I keep a good house, has become a more important part of who you are than all these other things that should be far more important. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, 
To the husband, he, uh, in terms of this next category of the things that we desire or value, you value your job. 1 Timothy 5.8 says if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So it's good to work hard and provide for your family, right? Okay. What about God's other priorities for your life, like Colossians 3.19? Who wants to read that for us? Eric. Husbands, love your wives and do not become bitter against them. All right. So if you are doing awesome at your job and horrible at being a husband, how does God feel about that and your values all in proper alignment? Your priorities. If your buddies at work think you're great and your wife thinks you're horrible, something's got to get fixed in the context of your priorities in life. And sometimes what we will then do is we'll say, well, forget about work. I'm only going to focus on family. That's not the solution. But the solution is, to, is not to pick one arbitrary category of things we value in life. Say, I'm doing great at this thing. I don't need to worry about the rest of it. Um, we'll keep moving. You ask both of them in terms of actions and commitments. How do your time that you spent on RC planes and Pinterest show your commitment as a child of God? How do they fail to? Are we saying they can't have hobbies or they can never look at ideas? No. But here's where something very practical might be. Make a time log of how you spend your time in the week and be honest. Just write it down exactly as you do it. And if they look at that, that's going to be very revealing about I spent a couple hours a night every night watching TV, watching YouTube videos, reading these things, looking up specs on these things, whatever it might be. How much time did you spend praying and, and, and reading your Bible and meditating on what God has said? How much time did you spend going to church this week? We want to help them see that if these things are the focus of their lives, then their concept of self as everything is great, I've got it all together, however much they might believe that, is wrong according to the Bible. Because God says, here's your priorities, here's the things you're supposed to be committed to, and, and here's where you're at instead. So depending on their answer to that, here's where a point where I think we really have to drive home, and I'm sure it'll come up next week as well in the final chapter, but I think we need to ask them, if not earlier in the conversation, at least by this point, Based on the fact that you spend all of your time and money on these things and little to no emphasis on God in your life, do you know God? Now, there's a couple of possibilities in this scenario. Very immature, like the Corinthians, connected with lack of good instruction. If she says, here's the sort of things I listen to, and if he hardly ever goes to church, there's going to be a lot of things that they don't know, which kind of is going to feed into the immaturity, Corinthian believer kind of scenario. But we have to acknowledge the possibility that it might not be that they're just immature believers, but that they're actually unbelievers who have this tangential connection to church, because a lot of people in society do, and the first step to really dealing with all these issues is you need to trust Jesus. Which then sort of goes back to this question of, so do we keep talking to this person? You know, 
Do we say, here's all these principles for how to live your life? At a certain point, I think you need to stop holding out biblical principles for making your life better to someone who is an unbeliever because you want their life to crash and burn apart from Jesus so that they turn to him. And that sounds harsh and mean and horrible, but the reality is, if I give them enough of Scripture that they sort of follow in a, in a moralistic kind of way so that life kind of functions for them, but I don't give them Jesus, I have not helped that person. And so, if they don't know Jesus, don't want to hear about Jesus, continue to turn away from things that Jesus says are important, at a certain point you have to say, you know what, I'll pray for you, but we're not going to do a book study on, on how to fix your marriage. We're not going to do um, a quick... Uh, blog post discussion on working through these problems with your kids. We're not going to do all these things because you need to see that your life doesn't work without Jesus. And the point is not whether it works or doesn't work, but the point is you need Jesus more than you need any of these other things to be better in your life. Do you need your finances to honor God? Yes. But your finances can honor God, but if you don't know Him, that really doesn't matter in the scheme of eternity. So, um, some things about self. So at some point in here, we've got to have this confrontation. Do you actually know God? Going back then to their view of God. Now, we could start with this at the beginning, or we could sort of build to it at this point. You, you talk to the husband, things that he's thinking about God. So these categories, thinking, feeling, or desiring, and then doing. How do you think your view of God sticking you in a thankless marriage would change if you learn more about him at church regularly? So this is what you said last week or the last time we talked, God has sort of punished me and stuck me in this marriage and my wife doesn't appreciate me. How much of that is due to the fact that you don't really know God or understand what marriage is supposed to be because you don't ever go to church? You don't ever spend time in God's Word. You don't ever spend time in prayer. Would your perspective on these things change if that changed? I think there's a reasonable expectation that it would. So, at some point, we've got to confront him with the reality of your view about her is largely driven by your either immaturity or lack of relationship with God. You might also ask, why do you find it easier to spend much, so much more time with your friends than with learning about God? So, you go to church twice a month, you hang out with your buddies a couple times a week, at least every weekend. That's like a four-to-one ratio, give or take. Why is it so much easier to spend all this more time with your friends than it is to learn about God and try to follow him? There's a lot of answers to that question, but we need to help this person be related back to Scripture about all these things. What about the wife? The wife has this idea of, here's how my life is supposed to be. Ask her a question like, would you still love God even if your life is hard, even if your husband never shows you the love or gives you the life you desire? Because that's going to show what, or her, what does she value, what does she love. Because if her answer is, if God doesn't fix this, I'm out, then her priority is what she wants more than what God wants. And again, we already talked about, I'm not talking about a, an abusive relationship. I'm just talking about a, my life is not as good as it could be, and I'm unhappy with it kind of situation. And if her goal is, if I don't get what I want, then I'm done with this, then... Her commitment is not to being a disciple of Jesus. Her commitment is to living the American dream and doing all the things that she wants. 
coming down to the end of all these things. We, we floated some verses about roles of husbands and wives, um, some things like that. Any other passages come to mind different or the same as last week that we looked at with regard to all of these things that have, we've sort of discussed this week? Any other things that are really important that we would want to take them to in the Bible? In Corinthians, you've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. Is that the one you're thinking of? Okay. Yeah, because we tend to think my life is mine. I get to do what I want. I want to be happy, and you know, that's sort of everything else kind of comes under that. And the, the idea of Scripture is you're a slave to sin apart from Jesus, and once you come to follow Jesus, you belong to Him. So your goal should be to do what He wants, and Pretty much every temptation and sin issue we struggle with is a fight between those two ideas. My life is mine, my life is God's. Okay. What else? Other passages that come to mind? Anything else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there seems to be this basic selfishness that says what I want is more important than what anybody else needs. Now, the need thing can get twisted, right? I need this person to do this thing that I want in the way that I want it or else I won't accept their overtures of friendship and so forth. We're not talking about that. What we're just saying, the contrast between a basic selfishness of I want what I want and you'll give it to me versus this person, I, I can minister to this person even if not everything is perfect in the way that person relates to me. Okay. Any other passages? Yeah, there was at one point when I started writing this and I forgot to put it back in, take him that passage where it says, why did Jesus come? Not to be served, but to serve. And I think the husband, for example, definitely needs to hear that. If you, Ephesians 5, are supposed to be modeling Christ to your wife and your goal is to have her do whatever you want, that's not following Jesus and that's not living up to this ideal of Ephesians 5 at all. Norma, you had one. Okay. Yeah. Hanging on to grudges until the other person admits that they're wrong. No, forgiving one another. Right? Yeah. So those are all great passages to consider. So next week, uh, we'll look at the last chapter, which is on the subject of calling people to new responses by faith. We did some of that this week, but I want to do it a little bit more next week, kind of wrap up thinking through all these things. These questions are going to feel tedious, like why are we spending so much time on all these questions, dragging it out over four weeks. The point is not that you ask every single one of these questions every single time that you talk to someone. The idea is that we think more comprehensively about what is going on in people's lives. With the goal of pointing them to Scripture, with the more important goal even of pointing them to Jesus. Because, apart from that, there will be no true change, whether it be in their thinking, their feelings, or their doing. 
and there will be no glory to God because this person is following him as a disciple as opposed to uh, we've sort of temporarily put a band-aid on the mess in their life and sent them on their way and then you know they come right back because the root issue is they don't know God so uh, the goal is to use these questions and other questions to get people to scripture to point them to Jesus so that there can be true and genuine change because that's what God wants for his people so that he receives glory for taking us from being miserable sinners to being more like his son let's pray dear God we thank you for the opportunity to consider these things some more. Help us to bring the bright light of Scripture to bear to expose the dark corners of our hearts and not just to see it, as James says, see the problem and then walk away, but to see it and by your grace be changed by our encounter with your word. So we pray that as well for the service to come and we pray for just a good day of, of fellowship and rejoicing with one another in Christ's name. Amen.